I'm Neil Acharya. And I am Nate Sager. And this is Sports Lit. So far, over the first three seasons of this show, podcast, I should call it, we have stayed current. And that is to say we have conversed with authors about their new releases which come out during book season, which when it comes to sports in this country is in the fall to coincide with the beginning of hockey season and it leads up to winter. Uh, although we do plan on revisiting true classics like The Game by Ken Dryden and Seasons in Hell by Mike Shropshire, which you introduced me to, we have yet to do so. Usually we go with what's current. Today, I'm glad to say we have a chance to backtrack and in some way um, converse about an important and honorable man due to um, an updated release of his 22-year-old autobiography, which will be coming out in time to celebrate what would be his 100th birthday. The man I'm talking about is Herb Carnegie. But before we talk about him, Nate, I want to just kind of delve a little deeper into his story. Now, we all know Jack, Jackie Robinson. He's a famous um, baseball player uh, who, of course, broke the color barrier. Um, his NHL counterpart is Willie O'Ree, who some of us uh, know about in Canada. But let's get back to baseball for a minute. Uh, what about Josh Gibson uh, and others like him that were good? Really, really good, if not great, but they never got a chance to play in the majors because of one reason, their skin color. I'll let Nate correct me later uh, because he's the baseball aficionado of the highest order, but I think it might be safe to make a comparison between Herb Carnegie and Josh Gibson. Um, Herb Carnegie grew up in the Willowdale neighborhood of uh, North Toronto, and um, he learned to play hockey on ponds there, and he got good. And uh, eventually he made his way to the Quebec Senior Leagues, which were very high caliber at the time. This was the original six era. Not everybody got to make the NHL. I mean, they still don't. But at that time, there's six teams. Uh, and, you know, it was very, very hard to get to make the bigs. And and he was never allowed or afforded the opportunity. He was so good, actually, in, in the Quebec Senior Leagues that one year he lost the scoring title because they were giving phantom points to uh, Tony Demers, who was... Uh, in a hospital bed. They didn't want to give it to, to Herb, um, probably because of the color of his skin. Um, he watched inferior talent uh, during those years make it to the NHL, which really irked him. Uh, Con Smythe uh, once said uh, he'd pay someone $10,000 if they could turn Herb Carnegie white so he could he could have him on the, on the Leafs. The Rangers wanted him, but didn't really have the guts to offer him more than a paltry, underhand minor league deal. And Herb, who was very business savvy, as would be indicative later in his life, um, said hell no, and 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 stayed with the money and supported his family uh, by continuing to play in the Quebec Senior League. He was simply a fly in a pail of milk, as is the title of his 1997 autobiography, The Slight never left left him and now the book is being re-released through ecw press uh and there's updated text in the latter half of the book it runs 300 pages so the last 100 pages is uh the words of his daughter bernice who will be joining us to discuss her father's legacy which is profound uh after retiring from playing semi-pro hockey at the age of 34 he started the future aces program which lives to this day um he was a successful businessman with the precursor to Investors Group, which was the Investors Syndicate, and won two senior titles as a golfer, very accomplished, but also faced ignorance there as well. Uh, his, his daughter faced uh, many obstacles uh, as well. Growing, She grew up through the uh, civil rights era and um, 
She's here, as we said, to talk about the updated portion of the book as well as her dad's important legacy. And we will have a conversation with her, Nate. Yeah, it is necessary. I mean, if to know the story of Herb Carnegie and his entire family, if you care about hockey and I guess the social history of, of Canada's most popular sport. I mean, and history moves in, you know, jagged lines, even though sometimes, you know, the media or the retellings tend to attach to one person, whether it was, you know, Gandhi or Susan B. Anthony or, or Greta Thunberg. But what one appreciates from the way that Herb Carnegie told his life story and the way Bernice Carnegie's complimented it by sharing her road to self-actualization as the daughter of a famous man is that you sort of find about his whole life. Like, what was it like growing up in Toronto in the 1920s and 1930s? Uh, how did he make the transition in the, to becoming a respectable professional and entering, like, like, sort of the all-white, like, you know, finance industry in the, in the 50s and 60s? Uh, he, both his story and Bernice's story uh, shows how they faced what, you know, polite Canadian racism in various settings, which is a societal problem that we're still lagging behind on in Canada in 2019 and as my mom would say need to get a wiggle on with that uh, you know biographies such as this can really furnish a fuller picture so much better than a biopic which might only show like uh, this crucial portion in someone's life uh, Herb Carnegie should have been the first black player in the National Hockey League and as you sort of alluded to, there was there really weren't the courage of convictions for someone to make it happen. But also, you know, the, there was sort of this austere effect with the pro hockey of, of that era. The NHL was, it was almost kind of, you'd almost like it to the CFL now. It wanted to be stay small. It almost wanted to stay small. And the unfortunate result of that was people did not see the best players play. And Herb Carnegie easily could have been one of those Uh you know, worldwide events also obviously played a factor. The NHL guy actually got smaller when he was coming of age as a junior star during the Great Depression. And and as they say, it functioned kind of like a closed shop for a long time. And so he, you know, instead you know, became this sort of legend in other leagues um, in the in the old Quebec, the old Quebec Senior League in the, in the post-war years. When, in fact, I think when you look at his life and, you know, the, the way the door was closed to him, you sort of understand why the women's players now, why they've gone ahead with organizing a players association and, and uh, you know, partnering up with big businesses. And then we'll see about a league like they're they realize you sort of have to control your own destiny and take it on yourself, which is something, you know, Herb and Bernice have done throughout their lives is in, you know, to make to make their way. Uh, you know, Herb Carnegie obviously was a pioneer and, you know, he I mean, Maybe it's a little facile for me to draw a straight line from him to Willie O'Ree to, you know, to Grant Fuhr to Jerome McGinley to P.K. Subban and so forth. But, you know, he, he is someone who found a way to pay forward. And, you know, this glad this book is being released. It's, I guess it's going to be launched on November 8th, 2019, which was the exact centennial of his birth. Shares a birthday with uh, Johnny Bauer, coincidentally. Uh, and we're glad to have Bernice Carnegie grace us with her presence today. And after the break, we will be in conversation with Bernice Carnegie. Stay with us. Bernice Carnegie, we're uh, very glad to have you here today on Sports Lit. 
Well, I am delighted to be here. This is kind of amazing to have an opportunity to share my father's story with a whole new group of people. Well, we're excited. And, and so I want to ask, the first question I have is, the, the, the opening line of the book sets the tone, if you, if you ask me. And your dad doesn't shy away from naming names in this book, um, especially some people that wronged him early on. Do you think when he wrote this book back in 1997, it was a sense of liberation for him? It was difficult for him to write the book. Um, He had been actually asked many times to do his story. And I think because there was a lot of hurt involved in it, that it took him a while to be able to figure out um, how he was going to make that work. But I do feel it was a sense of liberation for him because it allowed him to actually express uh, some of the things that had happened to him that he wouldn't normally have been talking about if he was talking to the neighbors or talking to a, a co-worker or whatever. So he kind of just laid it all out and uh, said what he needed to say, and I think it was good for him. So he wrote this with Robert Payne. Uh, who is Robert Payne, and how did he end up hooking up with him? Well, Robert Payne was, because I think he's retired now, okay. mm-hmm. uh, was a um, broadcaster uh, in Toronto and uh, a columnist. Uh, he wrote for newspapers, and Robert was the catalyst to helping him get started. Although Robert didn't finish the book with him, he did get him on the route. So did did Robert, was it a case of like, you know, a lot of times now you'll see, you know, you know, X player with a certain author, meaning they basically told their story and that author wrote it. Is that is that kind of how the dynamic worked? Did they go off somewhere and he just had a tape recorder out or was your father just using him to finesse the script and he was writing it? Do you remember how that worked? I believe, because I wasn't actually in the sessions, mm-hmm that initially Robert did the writing at least for the first four chapters and then would come back to my father and actually, you know, okay, this is what I've, what I've laid out. And then it got to be that my father did the writing. Robert wasn't part of the initiative anymore. And I have boxes of information of which my father wrote, um, wrote his story. And my younger sister, Rochelle, did a lot of the typing at the time. And some of the people that my father worked with at Investors Group also helped type those notes and helped him formulate it. So it was kind of amazing for me to actually think of my father as a writer because I'd never thought of him like that before. Uh, you know, he was the sports person and he was a personality in the community and all of that. And then to read his book and to think that he was able to share his story in such a conversational way that was easy to read. And I'm so grateful now because for me, what it does is it gives me the opportunity to go back and look at what he wrote and actually understand what he was thinking as different parts of his life unfolded. And a lot of times we don't have that opportunity. We don't ask our parents the questions 
that we want to ask until they're gone. And we go, like, why didn't I, you know, because I really wanted to know about, you know, your relationship or I really, with, with, with mom or I really want, my father put it in a book and I, it was the greatest gift that he could, he could give. And why is it sort of timely to bring your father's story and your, and your family story back into the limelight now in the fall of 2019? My father's story never goes out of sync with what's happening in the world. Unfortunately, uh, we always have problems and challenges, and racism as was brought up in the book many, many times. But we are still dealing with racism. And in some ways, I find it worse than when I was a kid because we have more people, uh, the majority, I'll call it the majority, the people in power see a threat when they see more people that don't look like them or they don't understand those people that don't look like them. So there's more stuff happening. I know when I was a kid, I was the only black student in my classes all the way through school until I went to college. And that's the way it was for my parents. Well, one little black girl is not a threat. So, you know, I went through school with the same group of kids most of the time because we didn't move around as much back then. You got your home and you stayed there, and the kids that you went to school with in kindergarten often were the same kids that you graduated with in grade 8. Um, nowadays, people are moving all the time, new people, new faces, lack of understanding, um, people that don't, don't understand the different cultures, teachers that don't understand the different cultures, how do they relate to the kids? And so it's a whole different ball game when you talk about racism now and racism then. You still have the name calling, you still have the bullying, but now you have places you can go to settle things or try to get a resolution. Back then, I had nobody to talk to. The only, the only people I could talk to were my brother and sister, and I didn't very often do that, right? They had their own set of stuff going on. So you didn't have a place to go to vent, and I internalized. I used to cry a lot. And so it, and that's kind of the latter half of this book is your voice. Mm -hmm. and, then, and so I was going to ask you about this later, but since we're on it, instead of jumping around, let's just go right to it then. Um, yeah, the latter half of this book is 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 your story. It's it's also, you know, this book came out, well, I say you know a lot, but the listeners don't. The book came out in 1997. Your father passed away in 2012, so it fills in that gap. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so the last 100 pages is kind of that gap being filled in and also um, your experience. And and so perhaps maybe in the time we're in, you know, uh, the the climate we're in, sharing this, as you say, was important and you had an opportunity to do it close to his 100th birthday? Is that kind of the genesis of how all of this came out? You, you could, you know, kind of put it into new perspective? Well, when we were doing the book, um, we were trying to figure out what is a good time to release it. And, of course, it's about a black family, so it could have been released uh, during Black History Month. It could have been released, uh, you know, on his on his death mm -hmm. or, or whatever but we chose his birthday 
because we feel there's a big significance in understanding that this story is a story that just never quits. So it's not relegated to one part of the year, but it it was his birth. Right. And this is an opportunity to share the story in a different way. There's a there's a lot of interesting parts. I wasn't I didn't know what to expect in the last half of the book. I knew you know I read Herb's story. I didn't really know Herb's story, but I read that, and then I didn't know what to expect from your part. And I found I found it very very profound and a lot of interesting, you know, very interesting and deep deep things there. But the the one thing that I I really liked uh, was kind of how you use the title of the book, A Fly in the Pail of Milk, and then associate it with different instances in your life and your family's life. Uh, was that something that was always going on in your head? Uh, or when you were presented with, hey, we're going to do this book, and I'm going to, this is something I want to do, or relate this to my father? I, at first, when I, it wasn't my idea to do the book. Okay. I should tell you can you explain that. that. Please explain <laughs> that part to us, too, please. <laughs> it wasn't my idea. There was a young man by the name of Kwame right. Mason, mm-hmm. and he had called me and said he was doing uh, a documentary on black hockey players, and he wanted to know whether my father would participate. And I said to him, I'm sure he would love to participate, but he's in his later years right now, and I don't know... Uh, you need to get to him sooner than later, is what I told him. And so he booked an appointment very quickly, and we ended up doing the doc, the the video or the the interview. And ten days later, my father died. And that was in 2012. Yes, ten days later, he died. So Kwame was the last person to, to uh, actually interview my father. And he said to me, Kwame said to me, you should really write a book. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, people have been telling me that forever and a day. You know, my father's story is a good story, but they said, you have a good story too. You should really write a book. And I said, oh, well. So anyway, as a result of that, I started writing. And I wrote for several months, and I wrote every day, wrote, 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 wrote all these amazing stories, and I would read them to my kids, and they're going, wow, Mom, this is, this is good stuff, this is good stuff. You know what, it's not just because it's because it's about me, as my daughter would say, but I just want to hear more. This is so, so great. And then I got sidetracked. Off I went, and, you know, something else happened, and I, and, and I stopped writing. And the story sat on my computer. Well, a couple of years after that, Kwame came back and he said to me, you know, Bernice, I have a connection with a publishing company or someone in a publishing company. And I think, yes, ECW Press, <laughs> I think we should, you know, would you, would you go and talk to them? And I said, okay, you know, kind of flippantly. Yeah, this, this is kind of nice for an old lady. Let me, let me do something different in my life. So off I go, and uh, we talked with uh, Michael Holmes. And in a half an hour, he had agreed that 
this is a good story to my father's book, which he had read already. Right. And as a matter of fact, he said, I even have given copies away to other people. That's how much I liked it. Oh, great. So um, then to add the, the combination of how my father's mentorship affected my life was clearly uh, a nice little segue to how we stand on other people's shoulders. And so I took it seriously. They offered me a contract and I said, okay, well, let me see what I can do here. But I didn't use any of the writing that oh. I had written before. Okay, so I, you, you just you went back to ground zero and just... Well, yes, because when we, when we finally figured out what is the what is the purpose of the book, it didn't work. It didn't work. Mm -hmm. What I'd written before didn't work, although they were all great stories for another time. Another book, perhaps. Yes. I had to rethink um, how my life was so connected to my father's and what he did to make a difference in my life. So it was Kwame. He got me started the first time. He got me involved the second time. And all I can say is I'm eternally grateful <laughs> to him. And he's the director of Soul on Ice, correct? Yes, he is. Um, yes. Uh, so who was the initial publisher, do you remember, uh, of the of, of your dad's book? Was it, it Obviously, it wasn't ECW. Mosaic Press. Okay, so was there any, and this is probably a business question that may, the publisher might have had to deal with. Was there a, any issue in getting that original book? Then combining it with what your words to create this book, you know what publishers never like to hand over their stuff, right? <laughs> and I wasn't involved in it, right. but but this uh, Mosaic Press had actually sent me a letter mm. um, many years ago stating they were no longer involved. Oh, okay, they put it in writing. Okay. They, you have the rights to the book; it's all yours. And we bought back any copies that were left, and that was that. And and this must, I mean, you you have great business sense because your father had great business sense. Obviously, it's 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 passed down. Like, can you? I'm I'm going somewhere with this, um, and I do tend to jump around, but I do want to ask you. Um, after hockey, your your dad went uh, into the precursor of investors group, correct? So he he was really well versed in in finance. Is that? A great, great um, advantage, I would say, in my life and in the lives of my siblings. My father clearly um, was stepping out of his comfort zone. And it turned out to be an amazing uh, direction for him. He set a company record from the first year he was there. <laughs> at Investors Group. At Investors Group. Then it was Investors Syndicate, right? It, it was Investors Syndicate when, we, when he started. And 24 years in a row, he reached benchmark of millionaire status, which is production figures, not actually money. <laughs> but money was good. Um, it was the first time he was really making very good money and was on his own time clock because he had to uh, 
find his own clients and you know there, he hated the nine to five he wasn't that kind of a person after being a sportsman you're not the person to go and sit in an office for same with sports writers <laughs> except the financial acumen part <laughs> yeah but i can remember uh i actually remember it all happening it's like it was yesterday and i do do mention this in the book um i was a teenager in my last years of high school, dad's out of work. I had a boyfriend. I wanted to talk on the phone. No, you can't talk on the phone. <laughs> Better not be talking on the phone. He was waiting for calls to come in because he's he's waiting for that call to, you know, have the interview for the job, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, they didn't have peekaboo phones back then. So it was, you know, the rotary phone, and you either picked it up or you didn't pick it up or you missed the call or whatever. So we were relegated to, you better not go near the phone because dad's, dad's waiting for the call. So he gets the call, and he goes down, and um, it was traumatic. Yeah. It was traumatic in the sense that um, for my mother, it was a sales-related job, and you got paid on commission. There was no salary, and she was scared. I can remember my father having a, actually having a conversation with me, telling me that my mother was afraid, and I can remember saying to him, you know, Dad, I really believe in you. I think you're going you're gonna to be fine, because he'd always somehow come through everything and been there for us as, as the father who was a good provider. Um, he was a wonderful dad, and so, um, yeah, I got, I got introduced to the concept of paying yourself first in my very first full-time job. And I, what, what struck me, too, is in your section of the book, Bernice, was how much you talked about, you know, I think you sort of said it at different times and point, points in my life, I had different names. I was Carnegie Chambers for a bit. <laughs> then I was Carnegie again, like that sort of, I guess, journey to uh, self-realization. But how much did the lessons from your father... How much did you find them coming up when you faced challenges as an adult, as a in your in employment and in, and in parenthood too? It was the good grounding, of course, of my mom and dad that they were they were always there for us. But the uh, the the separation from my husband was huge. Um, I was one of those women who thought I would get married and live in the house with the white picket fence and have the two and a half kids and I would never have to work again. And I was going to be like my mom, a stay-at-home mom. And that's the way it was initially. I was a stay-at-home mom. My my husband had a good job. He was a, an electrician, worked with Ontario Hydro. And um, then, you know what, you never know what's going to happen. I, everybody would have thought we had the perfect marriage. I thought we had the perfect marriage. He thought we did. And all everybody looking at us thought we had the perfect marriage. I went into a, a depression. And I couldn't really figure out why I would have a depression when I have a beautiful, I'm on a 10-acre parcel with a beautiful custom-built home that my husband built for us. Um and I had three amazing kids, and he was a nice man. He was a nice man. And um, 
I fell off the rails and I just couldn't pull it together. I kept crying all the time, didn't know why I was crying. I just, it just, and it, one thing led to another, you know, lots of stories. There's his story and my story and all the stories in between. But then I had to figure out um, what was going to happen because it was my decision to leave the marriage. And uh, he actually went to my parents and, and wrote a letter that they brought to me, you know, like, please don't do this and whatever. And um, I felt like I was dying inside, so I had to, I, I just had to go. I almost actually left my children. I not only was leaving the house that he built and the marriage, I was about to leave my three children. Yeah, and, that's, and that is sort of something I was sort of took away. Uh, was just um, how do I how do I there, there's some good I think some good life lessons in there for other women that sort of at that middle years of life, I guess. Eh? Well, the lesson I learned was that um, it's wonderful to have the good grounding of knowing what a good relationship is. My parents were very loving and caring and always there for us. The other thing is that I was stronger than I ever thought or gave myself credit for. Um, all of a sudden, I realized I actually have to find a job. And I hadn't worked in a steady job for over 10 years. So I had to go back and retrain myself. I tried to get a job in the field that I had gone to school in. I had gone to business college and thought, you know, but lots of things change in 10 years, right? Even your shorthand is gone and all that kind of stuff. And my father said to me, you know, why don't you consider the job that, that I'm in and finances? And he did that because I, as a stay-at-home mom, I did this part-time sales job, very part-time. I would, my goal was to go out twice a week for a few hours, and it was kind of like Tupperware, but it was Coppercraft, and it was copper products, and I, I would go to people's houses, and I'd set up this beautiful display, and I'd have so much fun with it, because I really didn't have to make the money. So I'm having fun, and I would color coordinate, um, you know, the candles with my with my outfits and whatever, and you know, and I was so good at being consistent. I won trips all over the world. I ended up in Europe, in France and Italy and uh, Germany, Switzerland, Hawaii. Uh, cruises. I actually won over a hundred sales award being this sweet little wife who goes and does this little part-time whatever, right? And my husband used to get to travel with me on those trips. So my father knew I had the ability to actually communicate with people, which is what you need in the kind of job that he was doing to explain how do you, how do you have money? And I was the only female when I got hired. By investors. By investors through only female in that office mm -hmm. for three years. And I'm thinking I might have been like he was the first black 
consultant to be hired. I'm thinking I might have been the first black female consultant. I don't know that for sure, but there were so few female consultants at the time. I'm thinking I was there. I never saw any others. Let's put it that way. Do you think that, you know, first of all, can you just give us a context of what time period we're looking at here like what decade what where if you don't mind okay i was i was in my mid 30s so in the mid 70s then basically mm-hmm. probably shouldn't have said that that's okay <laughs> i was i was in my mid 30s and um yeah there it was it was a time when finances were handled by men right. and all the men wore pinstripe suits and whatever and I look like a little kid because I've always looked 10 or 15 years younger than I am so I wondered whether anybody would even take me seriously but what I started to do was go and speak at uh, women's groups and and whatnot and when I opened my voice when I opened my mouth I sounded like I knew hmm. what I was talking about. And one thing that I was able to do that the men didn't seem to do was to speak in a language that people could understand. Right. Just down to earth, you know, you want, okay, what do you want to do with your life? What, what are your goals in the next little while? Okay, so, you know, do you have any money? <laughs> no. I worked with a lot of young people who had no money. And the most wonderful thing for me was I helped them to get to a place in their life where they were buying houses and having kids. So before you were a published uh, partial author or author, you, you were in finance. You did it. You've also... Uh, you know, headed up the your dad's foundation or the foundation. We'll talk about that in a second. But I will ask you, first of all, do you think your father, I mean, your father knew what was going on. This is the 70s. Do you think his experience allowed him to, I mean, obviously you're his daughter, but to, to, to bring a woman into the fold, do you think he kind of knew what he went through earlier on where people were not giving him a chance and saying, hey, listen, here's a chance where I can bring my daughter in to a male world and she can succeed? I don't even think he thought of that. Okay. What I think he thought is that he had a lot of confidence in what I'd already accomplished doing this little part-time sales job. And um, he believed that I could translate those skills into the financial field. So we had desks side by side, Carnegie and Carnegie Chambers. And uh, back then, the offices were a little smaller, so we'd have meetings in the boardroom. And when that happened, all the men would stand up and offer me a chair. <laughs> and I know it was out of respect for my father, because my father was, a, was super at the job. And I never got there. I never got to be a superstar in that job the way I was a superstar in the other job. But what it did do for me is it allowed me to make enough money that I could maintain a house and my kids were very involved in community and sports and they traveled and they always were able to, you know, do whatever they needed to do. And so when I listen to them now, my eldest son, who is just going on 51, I'm telling you, he's 51. (laughs) (laughs) 
uh, he's often said to me, you know, Mom, I didn't even have a clue that there could be any problem with money. He said, there was. you always did what you needed to do. We always had a beautiful home. I always got to play my soccer and my hockey and my whatever. And it wasn't like, the, you know, how they, there's this terminology, the single mother. And the single mother is poor and the single mother can't, you know, can't cope. And the single mother has trouble with her kids and all of that kind of thing. Well, I beat the odds. This is a perfect time then to segue a little bit backwards now. We're going to go even further back and we're going to, I'm going to hand the mic over to Nate and he's going to ask you, um, a little bit more about your father and direct relation to hockey. Okay. Yeah, so what struck me, I love the sections when he's talking about playing in the Quebec Senior League in like the 1940s. But in those days, like arenas were smaller, fans weren't behind, you know, eight foot high glass and you didn't have ear splitting rock music drowning out all conversation in the arena during every stoppage. And as her wrote, you know, sometimes he heard people say things about him and his brother Ozzy and uh, Manny McIntyre, who broke color lines in baseball and hockey in the 1940s. What would you hope people learn about what that was like for your father and, and, and how he had to overcome it and, you know, and, and the memories that he would have had of that, like how that all played it, factored into his life and how he overcame it? Well, mostly my father remembers his hockey as a wonderful time in his life because he says that the teammates that he played with um, were kind, were respectful, respected the talent that he brought to it. Mm. So, yes, it was more the fans that had a problem. Mm. And... I think he was conditioned from very early where his um, his coach, when he was a young teenager, uh, when he was faced with being called racist names, his coach actually said, you know, Herbie, the way to answer that is put the red light on. So don't go out there and beat the guy on the head. Put the puck in the net right put the puck in the net and put the puck in the net so my father which he did yes a lot (laughs) yes so my father had a sense of um what the job was the job is that i'm here to play and my job is to rack up points and i have to go beyond what people may be saying or thinking. Now, Manny came from a different part of Canada. New Brunswick? Yes. Manny came from New Brunswick. He was not allowed to sleep with his teams or eat with his teams and things like that. So it was a different kind of racism that he was experiencing. So when he came to join my father and my uncle, and it was at his... Um, it was he was the catalyst for putting that together. Um, he wasn't as tolerant of people calling names. 
I think there was one time he even went up into the stands and (laughs) pummeled somebody because, you know, he just didn't, he wasn't prepared to, to take that on. He had had enough of it. So it was the saddest part that I have to say about what happened and the fact that there was this stuff to deal with. If you really think about it, when we don't allow people, whoever they may be or whatever they look like or whatever religion or whatever culture or to perform at their best with the best, we're denying ourselves an opportunity to see the best. Um, more, I, I'm sure if my father had made it into the NHL, there would have been more great hockey, even greater hockey, because he would have been propelled to a point where, okay, they said he was amazing. They never said there was anything wrong. Nobody ever said anything about the way he played. No coach ever told him he needed to do this better or that better or anything. He was the guy that was on the ice when they were killing penalties, and he was the guy that was on the ice when they were shorthanded. And when you get um, named most valuable player three years in a row and other teammates of lesser status move up into the NHL, there's something wrong with the system. Yeah, that's what we, we talked. We talked about that in our intro. Um, yeah, I think back to 1946 and your dad's playing in Sherbrooke then and a guy named Jackie Robinson is playing down the road in Montreal so Quebec is really this this epicenter, or, or whatever's bubbling up is really beginning almost in 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 Quebec in a way. I, first of all, was your dad um, aware of what was going on with Jackie then when he was sent to the Royals by Brooklyn? Was there? A- he was very much aware of it because you know what they were kind of in the same vicinity. Yeah, and he really thought it was the door that would open things up for him. He thought he would be the Jackie Robinson of hockey. And, uh, um, it just, it, it, it didn't happen. And, you know, when they did invite him to the training camp, he got the letter. It, it was very, a very with the hope- Rangers. Yes, with the Rangers, with the New York Rangers. It was a very hopeful situation. And, but they weren't being fair. What they were offering him was right. a trip to the miners and a, almost half his salary cut. Almost half his salary cut. Now, come on. With the hope he may one day make the team. With the hope, you yeah. know. and and, and a and, smart and, man. <laughs> Go for the money and, and where you get, you're already being respected, right? You know, well, and he, he, I know my brother had this conversation with him. He talked to, to Dale about it and... And said, you know, they kind of said, well, there might be headlines. There might be headlines. So there was never a promise that you're going to do it. Maybe you're going to get there, but maybe they weren't going to let him get there, right? right? So, you know, you might have headlines. And my father's response was, I cannot feed my family on headlines. So if you're really honest with yourself as an individual and you've got kids, are in a home 
You're going to cut your salary in half for a maybe? And how is he going to do that? How can you, How does any respectable man actually cut his salary in half and mm. expect to continue to pay the mortgage and all the bills for their family? My father chose us over maybe headlines. So he gave up his, if he'd been alone, maybe he could have done that. But he had a family and he chose us. I, I, I thank him every day for choosing us, for having the guts to say, no, um, my family means more to me than maybe a headline. I'm probably drawing at straws here, but I want to ask you back to going back to Quebec. You know, with Jackie there, obviously there was a, a reason for that because Brooklyn had a team there to to kind of develop him. But was there something going on in Quebec? I mean, there's an all black line. Do you did your dad ever speak about maybe what the situation was like in Quebec? Was it more open to having black athletes play? Like, I mean, was there anything particular about the province, or is that just possibly an anomaly? that they were there at the same time. I think it might have had more to do with the coach, Punch huh. Imlach. Right. Who's and, that guy? <laughs> <laughs> Punch Imlach um, had, a, had known my father before. And, you know, he, apparently he was, a, he was tough, but he was fair. And uh, even when my father went off the rails and when AWOL one, <laughs> one time. <laughs> homesick. He was homesick. He was homesick. He was homesick. People go AWOL for, I mean, we can't just leave that out there. But, you know, these days that could be anything, but he, he was homesick. He, he was homesick. Mm. And he, he needed to see my mom and he needed to see us. And so he disappeared and then got got slapped on the wrist afterwards, but Punch took him back. So you think Punch may, Punch may have been ahead of his time in some ways? Or he just saw talent and said, let's use this, whereas other people were not thinking in that way. Well, of course, the black line started before Punch. Okay, right. Right? But um, it, it's, it's unfortunate because all the, I have all of these amazing articles more than 3,000 articles have been written about my dad, and I have a lot of the old ones, right? And, you know, it said they packed the house with fans. You would think that the money the money would have played a role in wanting to keep them together and wanting, you know, and paying them more and putting them in the NHL. But in this particular case, money didn't win out. Racism did. I have... Um... Two quick follow-ups on this because I want we have a lot to get in. So, it's, and staying with Quebec, basically, the first thing I want to say ask you is um, Jean Beliveau. You know, that's all I have to say. Jean Beliveau. I mean, the, for the people that are listening to this podcast that don't know who he is, I mean, look him up. He is a, you know a legend, a classy man, captain of the Montreal Canadiens, prolific um, in every way. Um, he wrote the foreword to this book. How and and. Later in the book, it's explained how deep the connection is between your father and him. Explain the relationship between Jean Beliveau and your father, maybe how they met and how they got so close. Well, my father was older, and so Jean Beliveau actually has stated that my father was one of his heroes and mentors. And um, so when he came onto the Quebec team... The Aces. yes. Quebec Aces, uh, my father refers to a moment 
where Jean Beliveau was not performing, and he went to the coach and said, like, well, why isn't he? And the coach said to him, he's afraid he, he doesn't want to outshine you guys because you've been around for a while. And my father said, well, tell him to get get a moving. <laughs> <laughs> don't be worrying about us. We'll worry about ourselves. Don't, don't, because he didn't want, that's the kind of n- guy he was. He was so... Um, Team first. Team first, gentleman. You know, he was that. He was the ultimate sportsman. The the word sportsmanship, not just sportsman. And so, but my father was too. And so the two of them remained friends. And in their later years, occasionally we would, um, you know, we would dial up so that dad could speak to him and, and they could speak to each other and, and whatnot. Um, they had a great respect for each other. Uh, okay, so the second follow-up to that before I hand it over to Nate is, if Quebec were to get an NHL team, I mean, there's all kinds of talk, would you like to see something done for your father uh, in that city in, a, in, in a, you know, some kind of commemoration by that team or, or in general? Lots of hypotheticals here. But. <laughs> you know, there had been so much talk about trying to even get Dad into the NHL Hockey Hall of Fame. And I didn't really involve myself in it. And neither did my father. Uh, other people worked on it and, and whatnot. And I, and I got to a point where I said, do I really care? Do I really care that this happens? I'm now older, and I'm saying to myself, maybe I should care, because it's an opportunity for this generation of young people to know what went before, to know that there were people that looked like us who made a big contribution to uh, the Canadian mosaic. We're not, it's not in our curriculum. I went back through five generations of our family and not one of us had taken any black Canadian history in our curriculum. So we're the visible people that are invisible. Indeed, and that's uh, that's absolutely quite shocking when you, to me, you know, when you when you put it, put it that way. Uh, uh, how, I, I, and that sort of brings me around to the the Future Aces Foundation, the Herbert H. Carnegie Future Aces Foundation. It's a very active charity. Uh, but how has it evolved over the years from its creation up until now? Well, that started prior to the foundation itself. My father. Uh, through the hockey school, which he called Future Aces, wrote a creed, which he called Future Aces. And the creed um, is based on the word aces, attitude, cooperation, example, and sportsmanship, and a number of attributes in between. And um, it's amazing how the Future Aces Hockey School 
was one of the first of its kind that actually spoke to having values. And that was important to my father because there was a lack of fairness in his, his journey through life. And so he thought that if he could introduce that to young people, that maybe it would change the way things were. He couldn't make the changes exactly, but maybe other people would make the changes. So it jumped from the hockey school into education. It was a few years later that that happened, but a, an educator came into the house and saw the creed hanging in, the, hanging in our home and saying, oh my gosh, this would be good for schools. So actually my father was the forerunner to character education before character education became the password um, at the uh, Ministry of Education about 10 or so years ago. So, so what year did he start this? He started Future Aces in 1955. He's still going. And he wrote the Future Aces Creed in 1956. So the word Future Aces became a living word that continued to permeate different parts of society through different initiatives. So the foundation itself, my father started going off after he finished the hockey school. He started going out into schools to share, the, share this value system that he had. And um, he would volunteer his time because, you know, he could do that. Oh, I don't have an appointment today, so I'll, I'll go to this school, I'll go to that school. And when I ended up having a desk right beside him at Investors Group, he said to me, well, I'm going to a school. Would you like to come? And I thought, okay, Dad. So I off I trotted, and I watched him. I didn't do anything. I just watched my father interact with teachers and students and how they gravitated around him and how they appreciated that this value system taught us to care about each other, taught us to stand up for what was right and speak out against what is wrong. It taught us to have a better attitude about how we interacted with people. It taught us how we could cooperate and unify and be the kind of people that he really wanted Canada to be. So I was, I caught on quick. And I, I say I got the bug and you ran the organization for 17, 17 years. And we're looking at, again, uh, what time period are we looking at here now, just for the listeners? Okay, I got older. <laughs> <laughs> and I left a job I really didn't like. Well, I'd left, um, I'd left financial okay. planning, went back into working in an office. Big, maybe, mistake, I'm not sure. But it was... I didn't think that people could really affect me badly, but they did. Okay. And by the time I left that job with the government, I had stress neck. It took me three months to get rid of the stress neck, and I said, I never want to work for anybody again. <laughs> and so we had started the foundation because my father wanted to give out scholarships, so we needed a charity. Mm. So he kind of came to my mother, and I said, well, what do you think? Do you want to, you know? And we said, oh, yeah, great idea. So off we went to a lawyer, and we did all the paperwork, and then uh, 
1987, December of 1987, just before Christmas, we got our charitable status. And a year later, we gave out our first five scholarships. Some years, we'd given out as many as 60 scholarships a year. This is to people in the Toronto District School Board or just all over the this place? This is people all across Canada. Okay, great. It was amazing. And these kids were receiving those scholarships because they were already behaving like future aces. They didn't know us. Some of them didn't know us. Some of them did. Some of the schools in the area did. But they were already out there giving to their communities, making a difference in their communities. And so we honored them with the scholarship and a, a character award. So we generally like to get um, our writers to read a portion of their book. Would you be willing to do that? or? Sure. It's about, Why, have you chosen something I for have, me? Unless you have your own selection. <laughs> yeah. oh, this, is about the, it, this is an important part of the book, and it comes in what I will call, you know, unofficially your part of the book, the okay. second half. And it's about uh, the future, organi- future ACEs uh, being known as a black organization, and then that's trying to be pushed out. So, yeah, I'd like you to read that if possible, because I think it's an important part of the book. Hopefully okay. you do too. From 264, starting right there. And then it just goes to the end of there. Okay. You've chosen a very controversial part of the book. <laughs> uh, wouldn't, uh, I'm just going to stop talking. <laughs> and so, a few years ago, while conf- conf- comforting a former board member at her aunt's funeral, another longtime patron of Future Aces, who happened to be white, leaned over and said to me, Did you know that one of the staff at Future Aces told me that they were no longer to say that your foundation is a black organization? It is now to be referred to as a multicultural organization. To some, this may seem to be a progressive stance, but to me, it was like a slap in the face. Was being recognized as a progressive black organization that had always embraced a multicultural approach somehow now passe? During the days of affirmative action, white corporations and organizations were hailed for including clauses in their recruiting materials that used such phrases as, we welcome applicants from diverse backgrounds. Why then? Should a black organization like Future Aces not be applauded for making this stance for its inception, from its inception? We were ahead of our time. Why would anyone want to diminish the status and identity of this organization to take away a model that had reached a level of success that served to inspire all communities? This led me to investigate the feelings of the public regarding how they saw us as a foundation. Many held the position of the founders that yes, this was a black organization that had a leader in embracing multiculturalism on its board, with its staff, and through its initiatives. There were others who never even gave it a moment's thought. They just appreciated the wonderful work that was being done to reinforce character in all communities. For those who are altruistic, a blended society is the ultimate goal 
and the hope is that eventually we will not distinguish between the races. My distant cousin Gwen Turner emailed me an interesting graphic of toasted breads showing a selection of various shades from light to almost burnt. It made me reflect that while I am from a family that is blended, I grew up identifying as a black woman who in fact was the only black student in my classes for the first 18 years of my life. That bit of hearsay reminded me of my father's early life in hockey. I would take Carnegie tomorrow if I could turn him white. If we just turn the identity of this black organization into a multicultural one, then will we be better? I think not. It reminded me of my school days when our contributions were never included. It felt like someone was trying to make our contributions invisible again. As co-founder of our organization, I felt I needed to confront this kind of thinking. Three board members, each of different cultures and races, saw things the way I did and responded with this comment. There has recently been a, con a concerted move to change the essence of the foundation to a multicultural one. This disrespects our founders, as well as alters the very framework the foundation was built on. Unfortunately, this was said in their resignation letter. I had hoped they would stay to right the, sh right the ship, and so I returned to the board hoping to continue to fight for the principles my family and I so believed in, but my concerns were met with resistance. I had always been proud of the 17 years I served as the executive director of our foundation. The fact that our mandate was broad and inclusive did not interfere with the ties I kept with the black community. I made sure our organization was listed on black ne networks so the black students knew we could be a source of assistance. I attended more than 100 events each year, frequenting black initiatives to ensure our foundation's presence and support was felt. People from all walks of life, from all religions, all races, and all cultures have embraced the values of the Future Aces philosophy. They joined forces with us because they believed in our vision of making this world a better place by being more caring and considerate of others. That does not mean we cannot embrace our differences and learn how each of our life experiences can add value to those around us. That must not be lost in the melting pot. My father was a proud Canadian black man. I am a proud Canadian black woman, and I am proud of the Canadian black organization we devoted the better part of our lives to build. That's fantastic. <laughs> And I'm about to cry. <laughs> yeah, I can see there was a little bit of a quiver, like a little quiver there. There's some water. There's some water. We take a break. We'll take a break. How do you? How do we segue from that? Well, I actually did bring up the question. I couldn't find her. I, I was fumbling for her earlier, actually, because how did that? How did that? Exp that sort of saga you just described. How did that tie back to the 
what you said was the lack of representation in like the school curriculum, which I was embarrassed to say I never really thought about and probably when I was going through school myself. Well, you wouldn't think about it if it doesn't affect you. And that's, that is the issue that we have. If you're not affected by, by people saying things to you, and they can be as innocent as one of the, as some of the things that I said in the book, right? Uh, how do you take them? The, the way I looked at it, when people said things to me, I had to make a judgment. Is that just because they didn't know better or because they were trying to hurt me? Most of the time, I found people were not trying to hurt me. <laughs> but here's a case in point. I was um, I became a manager in this part-time sales job, and I, I used to train other, other women. And one of the young women came to our home. This is when I was with my husband. Came to our home to pick up her kit, you know. And when she when I opened the door, she looked at me and she said, "Oh, Bernice, oh, oh, my husband and I drove up and down the road and up and down the road." Well, and we saw Chambers on the mailbox. That was my name at the time. We saw Chambers on the mailbox, but we didn't. We couldn't believe that this was your house. And she said it in all innocence. She couldn't believe that we could own ten acres of land and have a custom-built home that was nicer than her home. And it just kind of came out. But it was something that I, you know. I was used to it, but those would be fighting words today. Back then, you kind of dealt with it because I lived in, my kids were the only black kids in the school. We were the only black family in the community. Yeah, seen, and I remember a passage where you described your, your son deserved, was deserving of an athletic award. And someone sort of had to condition them, saying You're, they're probably going to give it to someone else. How hard is it to combat that in society? That I guess it was a that sort of politely sort of that polite veneer of prejudice. Like how how do we get rid of that? <laughs> we talk about it. We're talking about it. You're giving me an opportunity to just speak about it. And, of course, the newspapers are full of that right now. And we need to keep talking because until, until another person can empathize by understanding how it feels, you don't know. So you're on the other side of the coin. You had a, you had a whole different group of experiences. So Nate has a has his experiences and Neil has his experiences and your experiences although they might be the same they're not the same right but the one thing that I do know is that all parents usually want the same things for their kids I I live in an Asian community now when I first moved there it wasn't but the Asian community has moved in around me and I was looking out my window and saw a mom and dad, new neighbors to me that had just come from Hong Kong. And it was the first 
day of school, first couple of days of school, and I watched that mom come out and wave and kiss her kids goodbye. Exactly what I would, exactly what I did with my kids. All they, all we want, all everybody wants is to have the same opportunities. And why is that such a far stretch? Because here's the thing. We're accidents of birth. We're accidents from where we're born. It's an accident who our parents are. So why should one group of people or be intolerant of another group of people? You could have been that you could have been that person that you're you're putting down. Why should we treat why should we not treat people with the same respect that we want to have? And why is it that people have to take away from us what we've accomplished? So this is the problem with some of our young people right now, is that the system, the, 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 the education system was created by white people. So they're going to put white history in it. I was appalled. I, 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 I'm part of a wonderful group called Awaga, which is a group of, of um, Africans from Sierra Leone that support a school that was started by missionaries. And I was talking to one of the men who is from a comparable school and said, okay, so what do you know about your history? And he said, don't know anything about it. Because when the missionaries came in, everything was, we changed the language. We're going to change your name. We're changing your names because we don't get your names, right? Right. And they had no understanding of their history beyond starting in the school because it's all been wiped out. That's not fair. It's not, and, and this is what some of our kids are experiencing now, that people don't understand that we need to know where we came from. We need to know our history and how important it is that makes us who we are. So this book, is, is it part of curriculum in, in some places? Uh, are... Well, initially when the book came out in 1997, yeah. actually uh, the North York School Board did a curriculum guideline for it. It went into Peel and York Region, and it was Scarborough, Etobicoke, Toronto, or whatever. I'm hoping that now that the book has been re, reprocessed, yes. I don't even know whether that's a word. Re-released with updated uh, <laughs> words and text. Reboot. You're doing that with everything. 2.0. I'm, I'm, I'm doing the, a reboot. 2.0. Yeah, I'm doing a reboot <laughs> with, with some other thoughts in it. I'm hoping that the school boards will take another look at it because our black kids need to know that there's a black history and that there is there is somebody, there are people out there, not just my father, there are many others, there are people out there that made contributions that are amazing. I, I think, oh, not, not just black kids, I think everybody needs to know, yes. really. Um, um, 
I, I have a couple of quick questions, and because we're running short on time, I want to I want to get into it. And one is a segue, and we we you did talk about this a little bit earlier, but Willie O'Ree obviously ended up being the first black person in the Hall of Fame, first person to break, break no first person to break the color barrier, ended up in the Hall of Fame last year. You saw him there. You write about it in the book that you saw your father and him almost up there. I wanted to know when you do talk to Willie, if at all, what what is the conversation? With, with yourself, your family, and, and Willie? I have a good friendship with Willie. And every time he comes to Toronto, uh, we want, we get together. I try to be where he he's doing whatever he's doing. Uh, sometimes we have lunch or dinner. But I we do talk on the phone. Right. We do talk on the phone. And actually, I was talking to him just, uh, you know, a week ago. Okay. So, it, you know, he, he totally has a special feeling for my father um and he has and i have a special feeling for him so he's he's younger than my father um and he's older than me so in a way he's kind of like a father right older brother yeah right. well he's more than an older brother okay. but yeah. <laughs> back to that whole age thing. yeah yeah um. but you know what um amazing man and here's the thing he actually it was doing something similar to my dad with the NHL. So he's out there working with young people and sharing values that will help propel them to be confident, to be caring citizens. And hockey is just a medium for helping us to learn to work together. I have one more question, or two more questions. Nate may have some. You're, okay, my, my last two. This one may be a little bit um, more difficult, but I'm a journalist, so i got to ask you. Um, in 2009, the Toronto Legacy Group tried to bring hockey to, to a second team to Toronto, and your dad was somehow involved with that with Andrew Lopez. Can you kind of explain what that was all about and, 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 and how your dad was brought into the fold on that? Okay, so Andrew Lopez is a, a young man who, in a way, reminds me of my dad, never wants to give up on an idea. And he has been working on this idea for a long time that he wants to bring another team to Toronto. And, of course, he so has respected my father and the values that my father has shared in the community, that he has used those values in other areas of his life. I know he's in, he has been involved in, in other things where he's asked us, can I use the Future Aces Creed as part of that? So Andrew had a dream. He didn't want to give up on it. He, you know, it would have been nice if it could have happened, and he really wanted to honor my dad in in doing that and that was the basis behind what he was doing right okay and for those that don't know there was a you know that was right around the time jim ball silly was trying to get a team in hamilton so there's a lot mm-hmm. of talk about you know a second team in toronto which uh herb was part of that toronto legacy group so the last thing i i'm going to do here is i'm going to give you something it's a it's a gift from us but there's going to be a question attached to it so i'm going to give you this and put it in your hand and then ask you a question so just listeners bear with us for a second do, 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 do. <laughs> uh, so, so let me know when I can ask you uh, the question. Anytime. You can ask me okay. the question. What is Herb Carnegie? Car- Sorry, let me ask that again. What is Herb Carnegie's connection to Spider-Man? 
I believe it was 1990. That Three, possibly. Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I think it was 1990 <laughs> that the um, Canadian Chiefs of Police uh, started an initiative that with Spider-Man and they needed a hero. And so I believe it was Mr. Conroy who put my father's name forward as a likely hero to promote Spider-Man comic books that where my father was actually a real life comic book character who worked with Spider-Man to foil the drug problem <laughs> around uh, around uh, hockey hockey rinks. Yeah, like they were smuggled in pucks. Or they were smuggled in pucks and whatnot. And so we've had a lot of fun with this. I still talk about this when I speak um, in, in in the community. Uh, I devote a little time to to uh, talking about the Spider Man. Uh, and, and so in option. your hand there is the yes. These are the Spider Man comics that that that, uh, that had been started at the time, and. I just love sharing this with kids because they go, oh, Herb, oh my gosh, you know, and I have pictures actually of my father and Spider-Man, you know, touching each other, hanging out with each other and whatever. But what could be more cool than the fact that this is still big, Spider-Man is still big, and Herb Carnegie was a real-life comic book character. Was. So there's four, there's four installments of this Chiefs of Police series, so... Uh, he's in the first two, your father, and then we said, hey, let's just give her the whole series. So I, I don't know if you have them. I, I didn't know about the other two. The last one uh, is Spider-Man at, and, and at the Calgary Stampede is apparently the big collector's item. Okay. Um, as you can see from the price tag oh, there, it's oh, more yes. expensive than the other. So Chaos in Calgary, it's yours. Listen, I want to um, just say thank you for joining us and talking about your father. I, you know... I knew of your father. I didn't know the entire story. I'm glad to have read the book, and um, I'm glad to know your story now, too. And I'm sure I speak for Nate when I say uh, thanks for joining us today on Sports Lit. It was my pleasure. This was so much fun, and thank you so much for the comic books. I uh, my, my son is now into collecting all memorabilia about about my father, and I just handed over my father's skates to him, the prized possession in wow. our family, to my younger son, Corey. Thanks, Bernice.